Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire, one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And welcome to the 62nd episode of the Not-A-Cast entitled The Iron Rose, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Tyrion 8, in which Tyrion has yet another frosty conversation with his dear old dad, meets the woman he'll murder at the end of book three, (laughs) And then gets knocked out by a hammer, thus missing the battle. Oh, wait, that's the show. <laughs> no offense, they didn't have the budget to bring the Battle of the Green Fork to life in season one. But books don't have budgets, so we're going to get to dive into the real deal. Ooh, yes, we will. And don't worry, guys and gals, you're not having a stroke. We've switched our usual roles for this episode. As Tyrion 8 has a big-ass battle and our first big-ass battle in A Song of Ice and Fire, one that I've kind of written one or two things about over the years, we thought it would make sense if Emmett would handle the synopsis duties for this episode and for me to kind of anchor the depth section with all that military strategy stuff I love so much. Plus, you know, it's kind of fun to shake things up once in a while, right? Absolutely. You know, I love going through the doc the way we usually do and doing our little bits throughout the week. But this was really fun to change things up. And like it was like exercising a different muscle. Yeah. To try to, try to do the synopsis section instead. And I know you felt the same way about the depth section. I think we both did a great job, frankly. I think we did a great job, too. I am very excited to do this, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. And let's let's see what you guys think about this. See, what, Let us know what you think about this kind of new thing. It's not going to be a regular thing, but it will be something that we will experiment with here and hopefully someday down the road as well. For sure. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council. Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester, Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip, the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord G., Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, and the Blue Ringed Octoling. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say with each episode, is going to be all published books, five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, anything and everything, fair game for spoilers. Absolutely. Our question this week comes from Sir K.W. Dent of the Blow of the Podcast, podcast, who asks... Makthamoni, goi goi. I did not do that well at all. I apologize. Perhaps I am jumping the, ju- jumping the gun with this question as you good fellows get to the end of a Game of Thrones, but who, in your never humble opinion, has the single best arc within the first novel? It seems pretty clear that Ned and Danny are the two, quote, main characters of this novel. However, a dark horse candidate seems like Catelyn. Through her eyes, we see Winterfell, King's Landing, the Eyrie, and River Run. We get Tyrion's first trial, the Battle of the Whispering Woods, and the crowning of the King in the North. Oh, and she fought off a man with a Valyrian steel blade like a bamf. Also, if Jeff corrected my conjugation of Dothraki, everyone has to take a drink. <laughs> well, I did not correct anyone's pronunciation of Dothraki. In fact, I feel like I fucked up the Dothraki that, that, that Sir K.W. Dent wrote so kindly and so nicely in this in our question. So what do you think, Evan? Who is the main character in A Game of Thrones? Or who do you think is the dark horse candidate for the main character in A Game of Thrones? You know, as much as Jeff has the reputation of being very hateful online, nothing can match the loathing he turns inward, folks. So don't be, don't be too hard on Jeff. He's going to be too hard on himself no matter what you do. But anyway, yes, uh, Ned and Danny, as KW says so well, have the kind of clearest, strongest arcs in book one in terms of here's where they start, here's where they end, here's how everything that went along the way contributed to it. 
I think Catalan on the whole has my favorite chapters in the book, just in terms of, you know, powerhouse content, great scenes one after another. I think Catalan outmatches everyone else, but I can't really say that she's different as a character at the beginning of the book versus the end of the book. It's not that same kind of development, so it's it's hard for me to call her like the main character of the novel. I think another dark horse candidate is Sansa. I know not everyone likes Sansa's chapters in book one or at all in some cases, but I think she does have a pretty clear arc in this chapter. We've said before, like the beats are very strong. The the structure of it is very strong. And John does too. He has a very strong structure, even if the, the content of his chapters in book one isn't always as strong for me as some of his later chapters. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, as always. I do think for John, I get this feeling, and we did talk about this in some of our earlier John chapters, which I was, because I'm not a narcissist, I was re-listening to some of our earlier John analyses. And it struck me that a lot of his earlier chapters, in fact, all of his chapters leading up to basically John 7, uh, essentially work as a, as a mega prologue for Jon Snow as a character. So I feel like, a Game of Thrones works as John's prologue and then Clash on Into Storm works as his rising action with his climax being the end of a storm of swords with him becoming Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. So I think John's... Night's Watch. Shit. <laughs> Close enough. But with him becoming Lord Commander of the Night's Watch at the end of a storm of swords. And that's interesting to me that George stretches John's arc out over three books. He kind of does the same thing with Tyrion as we're going to discuss here in this chapter where Tyrion's arc works as kind of the first prologue in that Tyrion's kind of gets some resolution at the end of A Game of Thrones. But I do think that ultimately you see the rising action in Clash and he actually climaxes in two places, once at the, at the Blackwater and then secondly with the with him killing his father at the end of A Storm of Swords. So in terms of single best and single, like the main character in A Game of Thrones, I think it's clear that Ned and Danny are likely, in my opinion, the two characters who are the main characters, so to speak, of A Game of Thrones. But I also like you, Emmett, I really enjoy Catelyn's, Catelyn's chapters a lot. I've been reading and rereading Catelyn 10, which is our next chapter coming up for next week. It's good. It's it's really good. It might be better than Catelyn 5. God, I hate I hate saying that. I know, right? I know, but still. It's it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. So I think like I, I enjoy Sansa as well. I think that she has a complete arc. I think Arya is a little bit more open-ended at the end of a Game of Thrones. I think Bran is interesting in that he has almost like a prologue-ish type thing, but he only has six, seven chapters. Seven chapters seven chapters in, in a Game of Thrones. Uh, I, I'm not sure, I, I, but I would say ultimately, though, it's going to be Ned and Danny who are two, quote, main characters of this novel. No, terrific points. I'll agree with that completely. So thank you so much, Sir KW Dent, for the question. Loving blood of the podcast. Keep that going. And uh, before we get to the chapter itself, we have an exciting announcement. Since we hit our stretch goal of $3,500 a month over on patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F, Part of that is we're going to do a, a live chapter-by-chapter uh, chapter episode every quarter, that is every three months, over on our YouTube channel. So we're going to have a, a live stream where everyone can show up and watch us dissect the chapter and leave comments in the chat and take part. And we had a, a great time doing so for Arya's fourth chapter in Game of Thrones, Sirio Pharrell's Last Stand, a beloved chapter of mine. We had a lot of fun doing that live. A lot of people came and hang out. So we're going to be doing our next one on May the 27th. That's Monday, May 27th. And it's the... Other remaining Arya chapter in A Game of Thrones. A Game of Thrones Arya 5, a.k.a. the Ned Stark execution chapter. We're so mm -hmm. pumped. 
Oh, yes, we are so, so pumped about that. Uh, of course, doing Aria 4, we have to finish up our, our basically, it's going to be the last episode, the last live stream episode for Game of Thrones. So Aria 5, it makes sense. We got to do Aria 4, now we're going to do Aria 5. And of course, if you guys are interested in seeing more of this, our next stretch goal is that if we hit $5,000 a month, which we are not that far away from hitting uh, on Patreon, which is on Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-F, then these will be a monthly live stream. We know a lot of you folks are interested and really enjoy YouTube as a medium for getting your entertainment from A Song of Ice and Fire. And we are here as entertainers, here to entertain you, the plebs. The unwashed masses, we love you so. So obviously, <laughs> Ned Stark's execution is one of the major plot points and just draws of this story, really second only to the Red Wedding. We definitely got to bring our A game for that. And we, we look forward to doing that alongside all of you. It's, it's a great kind of communal experience, I think, dealing with not just any event in the series, but an event that major. So we're looking forward to that. We'll obviously hype it up a bunch more as we get closer to it. We're still a couple weeks away from it, but we will see you all there. We absolutely will. Can't wait. But this episode is not about Arya Stark. This episode is all about Tyrion Lannister and his eighth chapter in A Game of Thrones. And this is its synopsis. Tywin Lannister and his Lord's Bannermen are sitting down to dinner when Tyrion turns up late. He wants nothing more than to eat some delicious pork and get very, very drunk, relatable, but the others insist on talking shop. Tywin notes that the Freys have joined Rob, as we saw in Catalan 9. Lord Lefford complains about the truly unreasonable amount of axes demanded by Shaga, and then Uncle Kevon drops the bomb. When it comes to battle against the Northmen, they want Tyrion in the vanguard. And not even in command, but serving under Sir Gregor Clegane of all people. Tywin and Tyrion exchange poisonous insults laden with even more poisonous subtext, because that's just how they roll, and then Tyrion storms off. He hears laughter erupt behind him and hopes they all choke. <laughs> I'd quote exit music by Radiohead here, but Jeff would have me killed. True. <laughs> Tyrion tries to find his way back to his tent, but promptly gets lost and wanders around for a while taking in life in the Lannister camp. He witnesses a bunch of little vignettes and thinks to himself, no one looked at him. No one spoke to him. No one paid him any mind. He was surrounded by men sworn to House Lannister, a vast host, 20,000 strong, and yet he was alone. And that's a perfect summary of Tyrion's story right there. Always in the midst of armies and cities and big bloody set pieces, but feeling alone every step of the way. When he does eventually find his tent, Bronn is hanging out with a couple of new characters. Podrick Payne, the one true squire, and a young woman named Shay. Tyrion had asked Bronn to procure him a new love interest, you see and to make sure that she knew, quote, what I am, as well as who I am, because Tyrion hates seeing that flash of revulsion in a woman's eyes when she's brought before him without knowing about his stature beforehand. Shay introduces herself with some flirty banter, and Tyrion lays out the deal. He's paying her not only to sleep with him, but also to act as his paramour. Pour my wine, rub my legs, laugh at my hilarious jokes, and oh yeah, you're not allowed to bang anyone else. Shay, being a savvy young entrepreneur, agrees to those terms, and the two have sex. Afterwards, Tyrion thinks to himself about how he hadn't gotten laid since before the series started and how he really needed this after everything he's been through. He starts singing Seasons of My Love, the Taisha song to her, and oh no, I already see where this is going. Yeah. He leaves her to sleep and has a friendly little chat with Bronn about how exactly Shay came into his service. Bronn pledges to keep Tyrion safe during the battle, and Tyrion promises that Bronn can name his reward if they make it out alive. Shay wakes up when Tyrion returns to the tent, and the two have sex again. This time, Tyrion is almost able to feel something, and for him, that qualifies as a breakthrough, I guess. He goes to sleep smiling, and wakes up to find all hell breaking loose. 
Trumpets are blaring. Shay is terrified. Podrick is still snoring because of course he is. And finally, Bronn rides up in armor to drop the bomb, just like Uncle Kevon did earlier. The Stark boy stole a march on us. He crept down the King's Road in the night, and now his host is less than a mile north of here, forming up in battle array. Yep, that sure is Rob himself leading that host. 100% accurate report right there. <laughs> anyway, Tyrion commands Bronn to get the clansmen ready for battle, and then commands Pod and Shay to help get him ready for battle. He owns a suit of armor expertly crafted to fit his body, but alas, it's back at the rock, so he has to make do with mismatched odds and ends, which is not exactly doing wonders for Tyrion's already terrible self-image. Tyrion tells Shay to weep for him if he dies, because for all his practiced cynicism, Tyrion is a Byronic emo at heart, just like Jon Snow, which is why they became friends. With that, Tyrion rides off, wondering if he'll ever see another dawn, if that makes him a coward, if Jaime ever had thoughts like this before battle. The clansmen join him, and goddamn, the description of the army of the West preparing to fight is just beautiful. In the dawn light, the army of Lord Tywin Lannister unfolded like an iron rose, thorns gleaming. That's the kind of writing that's so good it's frustrating. Like, why can't I write like that? I would kill to write like that. Agreed. <laughs> George then lays out the Lannister formation for us in glorious detail. Uncle Kevon holds the center, comprised mostly of ranks of archers, pikemen, and men-at-arms with a knot of lords and knights around Kevon himself. The bulk of the cavalry, however, is found on the right, a, quote, great steel fist led by Sir Adam Marbrand, one of Tywin's most competent and least evil underlings. Tywin himself, of course, will be commanding the reserve from atop the hill where you can watch everything unfold. Tyrion spots Dad from afar, wearing his truly over-the-top lion-themed armor and cloak. I swear, you could feed the Riverlands just by pawning what Tywin wears to war. And then there's the left. Oh boy. The left wing is considerably less impressive than the others. And don't say it, Jeff. <laughs> I can see the political joke forming on your lips already. Not me, not me. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Outside the clansmen, you've got some mounted archers, a bunch of free riders and swords, field hands, young boys who have clearly never seen battle before. Tyrion calls it the sweepings of the West, but Bronn, being less pretentious, only needs two syllables to sum it up. Crow food. Thankfully, the mountain is in command. Why thankfully? Well, as Bronn says, if you follow a man that big into battle, the enemy's going to be focused on him, not you. Still, Tyrion is full of questions. What can Tywin have been thinking? Why did the Northmen force march through the night, leaving them exhausted for the fight itself? Above all, did Rob Stark bring the direwolves with him from Winterfell? Tyrion has some history with them, you see. No time for questions, though, because the Northern infantry has arrived. The gang's all here, from the Glovers to the Hornwoods to the Freys. But while the Stark banner is ubiquitous, Tyrion can't seem to spot Rob himself. Hmm, I wonder why that could be. The Northmen blow their war horns. The Lannister trumpets pale before them. And oof, that gives both Tyrion and me the chills. Mm -hmm. Sir Gregor gives the order to attack and they all ride forward. The Karstarks have formed a crescent of spears, but Gregor being Gregor, he bursts right through at cost of his horse's life. The clansmen rush to exploit the gap he's made, pounding past Tyrion even as he shouts for them to follow him. A flight of arrows lands on both sides. Curious. But the advantage is clearly with the Westermen, as the Karstark crescent crumbles before Gregor and the clans. Finally, the fighting reaches Tyrion himself. He fends off a man-at-arms or two, glimpsing Bronn taking on several opponents at once with his customary skill and speed. One particularly vocal Northman attacks Tyrion again and again, screaming for him to die, but then Tyrion's horse bites half the dude's face off. Gnarly. Tyrion finishes off Two-Face, but then gets smacked off his horse by a morning star-wielding knight shouting, For Eddard and Winterfell! Tyrion lies stunned on the ground as the knight spins his morning star and demands he yield or die. Tyrion, clever man that he is, chooses a third option, shoving the ridiculous foot-long spike on his helm, 
right into the chest of the knight's horse. Again, gnarly. These poor horses just can't catch a break today. Mm-mm. The knight winds up trapped under his dead horse, no longer demanding Tyrion yield, but instead yielding to him. Tyrion pauses to take stock of the battlefield as a whole and realizes that his side is winning. The fighting has moved to the center, where Uncle Kevon is pushing the Northmen back. Bronn turns up just after the nick of time and helps Tyrion find his helmet. Meanwhile, Tywin enters the fray with the reserve, shattering the Northern Lions and decisively winning the Battle of the Green Fork. Enjoy that feeling while you can, shit heel. <laughs> That's good. Keep going, man. You got this. You're doing great. Tyrion and Bronn check in on the clansmen. Roughly half are dead, including Ulf and Khan. Shaga was hit with a bunch of arrows, but most got caught in his mail and leather, and those that pierced the skin didn't do too much damage. And Chella collected four ears, so it's not all bad news. Tyrion then sets off to find Tywin. The Lion Lord is drinking wine, like father, like son, when Tyrion confronts him about the, quote, travesty that was the left wing. And again, Jeff, don't you dare make the joke. It's not who I am. I'm not a joke guy. Tywin explains that he was hoping the left would break, so Rob would pursue and then get flanked by Kevon while Tywin brought in the reserve. Tyrion is pissed off that Tywin not only endangered his life, but kept him in the dark about it. Tywin shoots back that a feigned route is less convincing, but also that he is not inclined to trust my plans to a man who consorts with cell swords and savages. This from the man who brings the extremely savage cell sword company known as the Bloody Mummers to Westeros. Hypocrisy much, Tywin? Well, ironically, the clansmen were just too damn good at fighting for this plan to work. The left wing never collapsed, and Rob proved more difficult to manipulate than Tywin anticipated. Speaking of which, Adam Marbrand comes riding up to tell the Lannister men what the reader already knows. The young wolf was never here in the first place. Northern prisoners have confessed that he took command of the cavalry at the Twins, and is riding to Riverrun to break Jamie's siege. So much for Rob Stark being a green boy with more courage than sense, as Tywin described him in Tyrion's last chapter. Even as the Lannister victory suddenly turns to ash, all Tyrion wants to do is laugh at his father's folly. If he didn't hurt so much from the battle, that is. And that is A Game of Thrones Tyrion 8. It's not the most cohesive chapter in the series, because the introduction of Shay and Pod early on really doesn't connect with the Battle of the Green Fork. You could argue they could have, they sh- could have and should have been split into two separate chapters, but the content itself is still great. The introduction of Shay is effective, even though I'm not a big fan of her relationship with Tyrion going forward. The dynamic between Tywin and Tyrion remains very strong in a dramatic sense, if not in a personal sense. And of course, we get our first big battle in A Song of Ice and Fire. You can really sense how excited George Martin is to get to that. And I know you were as well, Jeff. So how'd this reread go for you? Well, before I even start, I think everyone should give Emmett a round of applause here. So it's, it's only me clapping. That's okay. But just imagine the thousands of people who listen to this podcast now applauding you, standing up and giving you the ovation that you so well deserve. I don't like to call myself a hero, Jeff. I like other people too. <laughs> I totally understand that. Totally understand that. But yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right about this chapter not being terribly cohesive. And man, is this chapter long. I mean, by Audible's count, because I don't read, because I can't read, this chapter is the longest chapter in A Game of Thrones. And man, it's super, super long. But did I love it? Would me, a person with an established love of military analysis and minutia, love this chapter? You're goddamn right. I love this chapter. I mean, when you get to this section of the podcast, you know, Eminem is going to deliver some information to you all as in, in a manner that befits the intellectual laurels that he so some that he so humbly bears. But here you are with me and we're about to get into the goddamn mud. And because it's also me, we're about to get into the shade, too, because there was a time in eons long, long ago when battles were planned, when even 
fucking 60s hippies could write compelling battle scenes in their fantasy stories where battles and battle planning made sense as well as being cinematic. But it's not the battle that makes this chapter brilliant. Sure, the battle is great. I love it. And, you know, George, you could write battle scenes for the rest of your life and I would be satisfied. But, you know, just ensure it's the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Fire first, the two that I really want to read. But, you know, George can write all that. But what makes this chapter so compelling is simply the character and the thematic elements that George sets up in this chapter that not only helps to culminate Tyrion's storyline, but it helps to set Tyrion forward for the next couple books. But something that Em and I have both noticed in this reread is that George R. R. Martin is seemingly tending to culminate a POV storyline in the penultimate chapter before giving them kind of an epilogue chapter. Think about Ned 14 essentially being the end of Ned's arc in A Game of Thrones. And here, Tyrion 8 is that culmination for Tyrion of House Lannister, a battle where Tyrion fights for a father and a family that despises him and wants him dead. You know, I just kind of wonder, is that sort of a metaphor for Tyrion's coming clash in Stormark? Kind of feels that way. I don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. Everything goes swimmingly for Tyrion henceforth. He's the hand of the king, after all. But yeah, that's a great point about the, the structure being the, the climax at the the penultimate chapter rather than the final chapter. Tyrion 9, his last chapter in this book, is very much a transitional chapter between this book and Clash of Kings, setting up how desperate the Lannister cause is and how Tywin intends to react to it over the course of the Clash of Kings. And it's very effective in that regard. But yeah, this is the culmination for Tyrion in book one. And I think you also nailed why it works so well. I mean, I think one of the good definitions of great writing is you don't separate your character and plot works into different chunks and deal with them at different times. You do them together. You find ways of bringing character work and your big picture plot functions and doing them in the same chapter, in the same paragraph, in the same scene and getting all those things done so it doesn't feel like you're just jerking around from from different parts of your story to another. And I think that works really well here in that so much of the specifics about the battle strategy and, and everything Tywin is doing come together with this this revelation that he may have been trying to get Tyrion killed or just didn't care if he got killed and how Tyrion reacts to that. That informs all the the strategy stuff so it doesn't just feel like table setting. It doesn't just feel like it's detached. You can you can still feel the emotional character investment, even as George is delighting in all these military details. Yeah, it's not a risk game, right? It's not like where you have certain pieces in one country and you're attacking another country with a roll of dice. There's actual stakes involved. There's characters that are interacting with one another and you actually feel something. Now, we're not especially aligned to the Lannister cause, unless you're a fucking psychopath when reading A Game of Thrones, but at the same time, we're invested in Tyrion Lannister as a character. So that's what really kind of makes this chapter and the battle scene that ends this chapter very compelling to me. But of course, it all has to start, though, with another war council scene. We ended Tyrion's last chapter with essentially a war council scene, and so why not pick up where we last started? So again, it's really interesting how George writes, because this chapter begins with a lovely, lovely, delicious, you could even say, metaphor in the form of House Lannister eating pork. And you know, George, as much as I love you, and I do love you especially for this, you ain't precisely subtle with your metaphors here. I mean, you've got the whole idea of high on the hog, right? So the Lannisters are all eating, you know, roasted pig and it's delicious and everything. And certainly the pig that the Lannisters and the Highlands are enjoying was purchased at a fair value price on the market, right, Emmett? Of course, that's how things work in the perfect capitalist society of Westeros. Of course. Actually, of course not. But it works to contrast how the High Lords are living the good life on the battlefield. So they're away from their castles and their homes and from the riches that they can steal from the peasants. They are now on the battlefield itself, but seemingly their lifestyle has not changed whatsoever. Compare that, though, to the food that is eaten by those of a lower social station in this same chapter, where Tyrion encounters the clansmen in Bronn, and he asks them, what did you eat? 
Trout, my lord, said his groom, Bronn caught them. And of course, Tyrion draws this contrast between Pork and Trout explicitly later in the chapter, explicitly after it's reported that Trout has been served to, the, to his men. Trout, he thought? Suckling pig. Damn my father. I mean, it just feels like a really interesting metaphor that George wants to use to contrast, to kind of demonstrate again that social caste system that's available and that's, that demonstrate that social caste system that is being utilized to exploit people on the on and off the battlefield, but also to differentiate between the noble classes and the peasant classes. You think so? I think that's a great point. Like you say, he makes it explicit. Tyrion is comparing how his, how his servants are eating to how he could have eaten if he'd stayed with his father and the Lord's Bannerman. One of those is clearly much more appealing. Like during the hand's tourney earlier in the book, how after the actual fighting was done, all the peasants had to go home while the court could move to the riverside where these like roast aurochs were being prepared right. and all these like strawberries and just delicious food that, you know, they weren't paying for. They just you get to have them because that's that's the class you're in. And even look at the little detail like Braun had to catch that fish. He had to go out, you know, in his own sweat and, and find them and, and, you know, have have his pole and just sit there and hope he could catch some. Whereas Tywin and his bannermen did not have to hunt those pigs. They showed up at the table and there was the pork waiting for them. You know, because it's when you reach a certain station in life, you get to have people who take care of that, those things for you. And obviously, that's not something unique to feudalism. Every power system works like that to a certain extent. But I think there's definitely a specific focus here on, on how the other half lives, because so much of this chapter is about Tyrion's relationship to peasants and, uh, you know, his servants and how he thinks that through and doesn't think that through. So I agree. I think that I think Martin is trying to frame that by opening the chapter this way. Yeah. And because Martin is a really good writer, though, he also has an additional meaning. And this might be an interpolation on my part. But as I was going through this chapter itself, I was thinking about the pig and how it was being served. And I thought that the metaphor also works as well in the context of as greedy as a pig. Mm. So, like I said, George R. R. Martin's metaphors generally have more meanings than one. So, yes, high on the hog. But it also struck me on this reread that Tywin's inability to part with his own gold by paying his subcontractors, the uh, mountain clans, of course, because there's no political parallels or modern parallels, of course, really works here too, because there's no better way to lessen any potential future financial losses or obligations than to have fewer pockets to line. Because, guys, Tywin wants those fucking clansmen dead because the mountain clansmen will be in the vanguard. Yeah, I think that's another excellent metaphor. That's how Tywin functions. And it is a commentary on, on real world economics that like I remember in the, in the Simpsons when Homer founds a little computer company and it goes really well and, and Bill Gates shows up to, quote, buy him out. And the buying him out takes the form of sending in thugs to break everything. And Homer says, what are you doing? I thought you were buying me out. And Bill Gates says, well, I didn't get rich by writing a lot of checks. And like that's that's kind of how Tywin functions here, too. Like he didn't get all this gold by just handing it out to people for doing work for him. He he holds on to his gold by screwing people over and, and scamming people. And I think you can definitely see that in the case of the Mountain Clans, that he, he's made this this deal with them. And there's a lot of subtle signs that he's doing everything he can to not keep it and to, to sacrifice them or just screw them over as we would get after the Blackwater. And yeah, that the, as greedy as a pig metaphor definitely fits Tywin perfectly that he he's one of those characters who, who pretends to just be cold and rational and emotionless. But there's there's a vast bottomless pit of greed inside that man. There really, really is. It's so interesting when you look at Tywin Lannister stripped away of the popular perception both in the fandom and in universe and look at him as he actually is as this kind of avaricious greedy very personally driven dude and it's and what better and what better way to talk about Tywin's very personal 
and very avaricious and very greedy and very evil personality that is beyond that is underneath of the surface than to talk about where he's placing his son because he's placing his son in the vanguard. So what is the vanguard? And this is not to insult anyone's intelligence, but it's the forward line of troops ahead of the main army. And in a historical medieval context, it could be mounted scouts, sappers, or even diplomats, which is interesting. I found that when I was doing some of the research for this chapter, who would announce the coming of an army to ensure that a town or castle surrenders instead of having to fight it out in the castle or town itself. And it's interesting, too, because the French word is actually avant-garde, which, as a lover of language, I found pretty fucking interesting. That's cool, because, of course, that's become a term to refer to, like, art and architecture that's ahead of its time. Right. So, of course, and that makes perfect sense, because... These these troops in the vanguard are literally ahead of people, and right. you know, in art terms, it's metaphorically ahead of it. So yeah, that's that's a great little language catch. Yeah, it's neat. And in Martin's context, the vanguard in Tywin's army reads as kind of the mounted light cavalry force intended to make first contact with the enemy, with the specific Tywin-esque twist that we'll of course get to in this chapter. And who better to introduce this unique individual idea that no one else has ever thought of besides Kevin, right? Right. <laughs> sure, bud. Yeah, it's interesting how Kevon brings up the idea of Tyrion and the Vanguard, and Tyrion doesn't swallow it for a second. Like, his eyes immediately go to Tywin and go, oh, this was your idea, wasn't it? The Vanguard, he repeated dubiously. Either his lord father had a new respect for Tyrion's abilities, or he decided to rid himself of his embarrassing get for good. Tyrion had the gloomy feeling he knew which. Mm-hmm. It's pretty damn clear what Tywin is looking to do here. So not only is Tywin looking to fuck, quote, the help over, but he's also looking for an expedient way to Pontius Pilate any blame that he, not Tywin Lannister, never Tywin Lannister, was responsible for his own son's death. And that's just, man, that's just Tywin's MO, man. Place all the blame on something someone else, something way beyond his circumstances. You know, we have the famous example that's brought up in Storm of Swords about Ilya Martell's murder. Of course, it was Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch who did it, and Tywin had nothing to do with that at all, nothing whatsoever. And of course, as we brought up in Tyrion 7, Tywin had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the murder of the three-year-old boy who was tossed down the well at Tarbeck Hall by Amory Lorch. It's just so unclear whether Tywin ordered that or not. And then finally, the most Famous example in, I would say, modern literature is the Red Wedding. Because, of course, as Tyrion confronts Tywin after the Red Wedding and asks him, like, what was your culpability and responsibility for this act? Tywin says, the blood is on Walter Frey's hands, not mine. And that's just so Tywin Lannister attempting to get his son killed while maintaining that kind of Pontius Pilate washing of his hands of it. Like, I had nothing, nothing to do whatsoever. How tragic that my son Tyrion died in battle for House Lannister. It, it's so similar to what Littlefinger says to Sansa in the Storm of Swords. No matter what you do, make sure your hands are clean when he's talking about the Purple Wedding, his, his own uh, his own bloody wedding feast creation. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a classic thing with, with a character like Tywin who wants to have this reputation of being stern and, and fierce but not a bloodthirsty maniac. So he's trying to maintain this balance by having these disavowable elements that he can send to do his dirty work for him while not doing it himself. And I think you see something similar with uh, with Roose and Ramsay in the North where Roos has this reputation of being cold and hard, but someone describes him as a man you can deal with in spite of being that way, whereas Ramsay is an outright monster. Even though a lot of what Ramsay does is ordered by Roos, and Roos does plenty of horrible, vicious things himself, that, that reputation is kind of a facade, but it's a useful one, and both Roos and Tywin know that you can, you can get farther being seen as fierce but reliable versus just crazy. So I, especially I think Tywin is working off of Eris's example when it comes to that. And so this that's how he functions politically. But as you say, when you peel back that surface and see what he's definitely allowing to happen at the very least, it's it's just hideous. All these, these dead children and, and dead innocents and 
the horrors at the Red Wedding, his own kin in the case of Tyrion. And Tywin wants to tell himself it's got nothing to do with him, but I don't think we're supposed to fall for that one bit. No, not at all. As we talked about in Tyrion 7, it's very much what Tywin is looking at in Tyrion. He's seeing all of his past hurts, especially in the form of Joanna Lannister. And what better way to avenge Joanna Lannister than to kill the guy who was responsible for, for Joanna's death, but not really. Wow, the Lannisters are so screwed up. I mean, it's, it's fascinating in a, in a you know house of Atreus, Greek tragic kind of way, but... As we said in Tyrion 7, there's just so much hostility and toxicity going in every direction. It's amazing they lasted as long as they did. It really, really has. Now, of course, Tywin is going to rely on manipulation, though, to get Tyrion to volunteer for this duty. And as much as Tyrion is among the smarter, if not the smartest characters, especially among our point of view characters, he falls for Tywin pricking his pride. And the quote is, Lord Tywin Lannister turned to his brother. If my son's men will not obey his commands, perhaps the vanguard is not the place for him. No doubt he would be more comfortable in the rear guarding our baggage train. Do me no kindness, father, Tyrion said angrily. If you have no other command to offer me, I'll lead your van. Now, recall how Tywin relied on a kind of similar manipulation to get the mountain clansmen to ride with him against the Stark host from Tyrion 7, where it's, quote, Would you pay us with our own coin, Ulf, son of Umar said? Why should we need the father's promise when we have the son's? I said nothing of need, Lord Tywin replied. My words were courtesy, nothing more. You need not join us. The men of the Winterlands are made of iron and ice, and even my boldest knights fear to face them. Oh, deftly done, Tyrion thought, smiling crookedly. And I think it's unclear to me, though, whether Tyrion recognizes that he's being manipulated by Tywin here, or whether Tyrion, or whether Tywin's use of shame and pricking Tyrion's prize working here. All the same, well done, Tywin? I guess. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it might be both that Tyrion realizes what's going on, but it still works anyway. He's smart enough to know he's being manipulated, but his pride is just too strong to prevent him from being manipulated. And yeah, I love that that line from Ulf, would you pay us with our own coin? That gets back to the analogy to screwing over subcontractors, where Tywin is trying to pay someone who wants to do two jobs. And he's, he's managing to get away with it because he knows he can play on people's pride. And Tywin is very good at that, but what he doesn't realize is that he is just as vulnerable in the same way. That he gets screwed over repeatedly in the early stages of the War of Five Kings because he's working on pride and recklessness and assuming he knows what Rob Stark is going to do and Rob Stark doesn't know what he's going to do. So while Tywin is very good at this and we're seeing his political skills at work, I think it's one of those classic situations where Tyrion is much more like Tywin than either one of them are willing to admit. So if Tyrion can be manipulated this way, so can Tywin. Absolutely. Tyrion works as kind of a microcosm to Tywin's greater hubris in assuming that Rob Stark is going to follow the exact regimen that he believes that, that he would do. Now, of course, in this case, though, Tyrion's pride is still going to be pricked all the same because Tywin can't let Tyrion go away uninsulted, of course, because Tyrion, honey, as much as you want to lead the vanguard, sorry, that honor is going to the very, very noble knight by the name of Sir Gregor Clegane. So to sum up, dad wants you dead and then shamed before you die. You're not even going to lead the vanguard. You're going to be a subordinate to a absolute monster. Ultimately, I think that Emmett and I can both come down to that Tywin needs a, quote, needs improve in the dad department. Yeah, that's a great point. Tywin doesn't even want Tyrion to, like, have a big heroic, you know, crowning moment of badass to himself. He just wants him to be humiliated before he goes. And yeah, but Tyrion's pride, as you say, it's pricked. Like, why would he think he's going to lead the van? Tyrion has no battle experience. Gregor's not exactly the smartest nail in the box, but at least he has battle experience. It would make no sense for Tyrion to get in the command. But it's, as with the relationship between Robert and Stannis, it's not really about 
the logistics and military strategy. It's about respect. It's about a, a gesture that command would be. And it's, we're going to see that in Tyrion's next chapter when Tywin gives Tyrion the handship. And Tyrion is, he thinks back to this battle and wonders, am I being sent to hold the left again? Am I just being sent into a trap, a situation which will collapse around me? Or is dad finally taking me seriously and giving me a responsibility? So these these military decisions are stand-ins for their personal relationship. And I think Martin does a really good job of getting that across. He really, really does. But as we saw in episode two of season eight, there is that moment the last night before battle. And some men want to have a drink by themselves. Other men and women want to sit by a fireside and swear nightly vows and get and sing songs and do all that sort of stuff. Tyrion, though, much like Arya in episode two, wants to fuck. So we now get to the introduction of Shay, our problematic sex worker whose relationship with Tyrion Lannister is going to be something that is going to be quite the defining feature of Tyrion Lannister's story in the first three books and actually really beyond that as well. So I got to say, I sort of prefer the way that the show handled the scene with. So before we actually get into the scene itself, I figured I would give props to the show because I have. Spoken a fair amount of shade about the show in recent episodes about Game of Thrones season eight. I know, right? And that I sort of prefer the way that the show handled this scene with the drinking game and Tyrion revealing the Taisha backstory to Bronn and Shay. Now, I'm not saying that the reveal back in Tyrion 6 didn't have teeth because it absolutely did. And But like we said in that chapter, though, that reveal comes out of nowhere when we're doing our analysis of it. But in the show, it really helped to tie together how awful Tywin is. Not only is he willing to put his son into danger and try and get his son killed and shame his son by not giving him any real command. Now we get the backstory of Tywin's true brutality and evil and horror that he visits on Tyrion in the backstory. I think that's a great point, and it's, it works to link together what happened to Taisha with what's going to happen to Shay, because there are just so many connections there in terms of this woman getting caught between the Lannister men and dying for it. And you have Tyrion's sex drive all caught up with death. Like, he, he you know, he wants to be able to just get his rocks off and not think about anything, but it, it always comes back to Taisha, what happened to Taisha, and that just all leads up to what happens to Shay, and he... He can't use her to get away from the world and get away from his father in the way that he wants. It just, it just, it, it never works. But some little, one little detail I really liked upon rereading, I hadn't noticed this before, is but prior to the introduction of Shay, as I said, Tyrion's wandering around, wandering around the camp, you know, seeing a bunch of troops and, and camp followers doing what they do. And we, we get this wonderful little paragraph. I'm just going to read it. Away in the distance, he heard voices raised in some bawdy song. A giggling woman raced past him, naked beneath a dark cloak, her drunken pursuers stumbling over tree roots. Farther on, two spearmen faced each other across a little trickle of a stream, practicing their thrust and parry in the fading light, their chests bare and slick with sweat. This is so great because what Martin is doing here is spelling out that Tyrion is horny without having him say so directly. Like, all of those images are about sex. A body song, a giggling woman naked beneath a cloak with someone running after her. Two spearmen with their, their chests bare and covered in sweat with thrust and parry. Like, that's all those images have to do with how Tyrion is feeling. And that's that's so much more effective for getting across his mood than having just Tyrion walk up to Bronn and say, Hello, Bronn. I'm feeling sexually aroused right now. Did you find that girl I asked you about? Which, you know, obviously no book would be that blunt about it. But this is this is one of the situations where I feel like lesser stories would spell this out more. Whereas I think Martin does a great job of hiding Tyrion's horniness in just what he's looking at. Yeah, that's a really fun detail that I think really speaks to Martin as a really good writer. Because, again, lesser writers would be like, 
I'm fucking horny. Let's fuck. Let find me, find me a sex worker. Let's fuck. Uh, that's essentially bad writing. Here, Martin uses metaphors in in describing that Tyrion's mood is uh, angling towards getting towards the nasty, so to speak. So it's it's fun <laughs> that we have you know that working as a great metaphor for Martin here. Absolutely. And then we get the introduction of Shay. And I'll say off the top, and this will come up in later books. I'm not a big fan of how Shay is written as a character or a relationship with Tyrion. Not that I have any problem with, you know, having a sex worker character, having sex scenes in the story. My, my problem is their relationship doesn't really evolve. Like, it never really moves beyond the, the bounds that are set up in this scene. But, it's, you know, between this and Tyrion's trial, when it all falls apart, basically every Tyrion and Shay scene kind of works the same. And they all kind of blur together in my head. I don't remember which happens when. And But it it is, the basis for it here is effective. I wish they moved in some different directions, but I think Martin does a great job of setting up how this relationship works and how it's going to fall apart right here. Like, Shay sets up right from the start that everything she does is performance, and she emphasizes this more in the show, that her name is whatever Tyrion wants it to be. Like, yeah, Shay is her birth name, but this is her performance. She can come up with another name and another history as, as long as it makes him happy, because that's what's being paid for. And Tyrion can only interpret that as he does later as lies and treachery and all women lie and whores just lie for coin. But no, this is literally her job description. <laughs> this this is what she does. Like, this is how she makes a living. And, you know, Tyrion is willing to pay money for that. So what, what you know, how, how can he get on his high horse about Shay lying to him when he's literally paying her to do it? Exactly. That's. 100% accurate. And I think to kind of circle back to something you said, though, Martin has said that he prefers the Shay in Game of Thrones versus the character that he developed in A Song of Ice and Fire. And he's also said there's further reveals to come down the road about Shay, which we've got plenty of other Shay scenes we'll talk about. So we can talk a little bit more about what that might mean. But it's so very true what you're saying, though, about how it's lies and treachery that is that Tyrion is interpreting it's lies and treachery that Tyrion ends up reacting so strongly against in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons, but it is her job. But it also works really well because it's very integral to Tyrion's self-conception of being unworthy of love. And this is all due to his physical deformity. The, and the quote here, as they first start having sex, is really interesting. It's, quote, when he entered her, she welcomed him, she welcomed him with whispered endearments and small, shuddering gasps of pleasure. Tyrion suspected her delight was feigned, but she did it so well that it did not matter. That much truth he did not crave. So it's fascinating to me that Tyrion knows at some level that Shay is who she is, but he doesn't want to confront the truth about her all the same. And we will have a little bit more to say about that down the road. He just projects this image onto her, which is kind of Taisha and kind of everyone else he slept with and kind of an idealized image of a woman that exists only in his head. But as I was saying earlier, with Tyrion maybe being aware that Tywin is manipulating him, but still being manipulated... He knows at some level that, of course, this is a performance by Shay, because that's exactly what he asked for to do. I mean, the problem is that Tyrion pays her to pretend to be his girlfriend. <laughs> like He sets up not just that you're going to sleep with me, but you're going to rub my legs and pour my wine. And this is really revealing. Laugh at my jests. So pretend to enjoy my company. Pretend to be my partner. And then he immediately starts projecting Taisha onto her and falling for her as if her endearments are real. So by the time you get to a storm of swords, he's holding her responsible for his fate as though he's her genuine romantic partner and she owes him something in that regard, rather than the truth, which is that he is her client and has repeatedly risked her life by dragging her to King's Landing. Basically, Tyrion refuses to appreciate that working for him can be a really dangerous profession. I mean, look at how Bronn had to go up against a knight just to get Tyrion a pleasing paramour. Now, I'm sure Bronn was not in any actual danger because Bronn is one of the best at sword fighting in the series. But still, like, that's what Bronn's job had to be. He had to go maybe risk himself 
to, to find Tyrion someone to sleep with. And this is just a big blind spot on Tyrion's part. He doesn't realize that Shay really doesn't owe him anything. And yes, of course, it hurts so much to have her share those intimate secrets and trial in public and have everyone laugh at him. But what else is she supposed to do? Her life is on the line after he's in jail. She can't protect, he can't protect her anymore. And he's built up this relationship in his head that doesn't exist. And just because he fell in love with her does not confer responsibility on her. And it's, again, that duality where he tells himself throughout the series how foolish he is to think this way, how foolish he is to fall in love with her. But he does it anyway. Mm -hmm. He still falls into that trap. And this is, again, one of those situations where he's he's different from Tywin on the surface, but like Tywin underneath where, because as, as we'll pretty much learn later, it's not explicit, but pretty much that Tywin has been visiting a lot of prostitutes after Joanna's death. And I can I was just imagining Tywin catching a passing feeling for one of them and then just crushing it out with an iron will, just taking that feeling, that spark of love, and just killing it like an ant between his fingers. That's what he'd do with it. But Tyrion has this, has this attachment to love that he can't quite give up at this point. So it's this constant theme, as we were talking about in Tyrion 7, where the more Tyrion tries to run from being like Tywin the more he ends up right back in his father's shadow. As Jenna will tell Jamie in A Feast for Crows, all the Lannister men try to escape Tywin, but you just can't. You really, really can't escape Tywin Lannister. And it's also interesting, too, that after the trial, in Cersei's point of view, chapters in, in A Feast for Crows, the only mention we get of Shay is that Shay comes up to Tyrion, uh, Shay comes up to Cersei saying, hey, you owe me, like, pay up. I was supposed to be given these things for my service at the trial itself. So it's very much a transactional relationship. And it's interesting, too, as we said back in Catelyn 9, Walter Frey is very much that transactional type of political leader, but he's only the kind of grubby, lower-class dude doing the same thing that Tywin Lannister does here and having a transactional relationship with the political people that he is involved with. Tyrion is in a transactional relationship with this sex worker in the form of Shay, but again, he can't help but fall in love with her. It's almost like that Maester Aemon statement, love is the bane of honor and the death of duty. For Tyrion, that's going to prove ultimately true. And it's constantly haunted by class because you had that great line from Tyrion 6 about how he had to pay Tyson gold because he was a Lannister and worth more. So his identity as a Lannister and that status is being framed as like, you know, you're your rape means more. Like, that's it's just a horrible sentence to say out loud, but that's what Tywin is saying to Tyrion in that moment. Like, even in this moment of horror, this is what your Lannister status is. And so it, it's become... The Lannister status is kind of this nightmarish image in Tyrion's mind, but it's he doesn't have identity outside it, so he's kind of stuck with it. All the themes of, like, of sex and gold and death, they all come together with the Lannisters, of course, at the end of A Storm of Swords, when when Tyrion grabs that golden hand chain around Shay's neck and just and just twists it tight. And that is that is one of the most brutal scenes in the story, very uncomfortable, but it, it really does work because of how well the, the dynamic between Tyrion and Tywin and how it reflects on Shay is built up in the first couple books. But all that, you know, drama and character and literary stuff aside, the main draw of this chapter is the battle, the Battle of the Green Fork. Woo, woo, are we ready? Because it's battle time, baby. Well, almost. We got to actually set the battle up itself. So George has to properly build that battle up. And he has to surprise us when the battle actually comes. Now, we do know that the Stark, quote-unquote, host is a day's ride mar or a day's march north of, of the Lannister host here. But George ends up surprising us with when the battle actually commences. And how does he do this? Well, with trumpets, damn it, because it's wake-up time for Tyrion. As Tyrion is thinking about in his head, it's, he hears the trumpets and he thinks the trumpets are saying, hurry, hurry, hurry. 
So Tyrion being awoken by the trumpets and the threat of immediate battle symbolizes the Lannister army being caught totally unaware and caught off guard by the, quote, Stark host. I'm going to keep using, quote, Stark host because I'd love it. Yeah, that's a terrific point about how Martin has to set up something that's clearly coming but still make it a surprise. It reminds me of what we were saying about the zombie attack in John 7, where it's kind of clear what's going to happen. But Martin structures the chapter so it's still a surprise to you when it actually does occur. And I think he does the same thing with the battle here. Yeah, it's like that scene with Shay works as kind of like a moment where the it's the resting action, so to speak, before he immediately ratchets up the tension on up again. So, <laughs> but the tension as it comes is pretty great. And on reread, and especially on this reread, it is astonishing how badly Tywin fucks this battle up before it even starts. Oh my god, Tywin Lannister, your reputation is so, so way ahead of what the reality is behind you. Because let's list out the things that Tywin does in this battle before the battle actually starts. So first, he pulls Sir Adam Marbrand back, so he's got no eyes on the quote, Stark host coming south. Good thinking, Tywin. Adam was really, really needed for his very, very crucial role in the battle itself. Uh, he's not. He And then, of course, as we talked about before, he doesn't brief Tyrion on his actual role in the battle. You know, Tywin could have destroyed the entire northern army if the clansmen had broken or even fake retreated back. And maybe, maybe, you know, let them fucking know that it's part of the plan and you're lying about, quote, feign retreats is bullshit and you know it, Tywin, but we're going to get to that. Then he doesn't put out word of when the army is supposed to muster the next day for battle. They know the the quote Stark host is coming, and as a day rides north of them at dinner the night before, maybe you know say something like, "I want the army assembled in battle formation by 8 a.m. the next morning." Nope, don't call me. I'll call you. That is the Tywin response here. And man, man, like I said, Tywin's reputation is so shiny. People respect him and his military prowess. But when you actually look at his conduct on an actual battlefield, the first battle in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's shit. He doesn't do a good job setting up his army and the battle properly for Team Lannister. Yeah, I mean, speaking of shit, you have the the ultimate Tywin moment when he comes in on his his nice splendid horse and his splendid armor after the Battle of Blackwater and the entire court in the throne room is cheering his on. And then his horse just drops a giant load of horse dung right in front of the Iron Throne which is just, you know, one of the least subtle signs from the author that Tywin is, in fact, full of shit and is, does not live up to his reputation. And yeah, I mean, you, you make great points. And it's, it's part of me wonders why that's the kind of thing isn't obvious on first read. And part of it, of course, is not everyone is, you know, knows the military details as well as your good self does. But part of it, I think, also is that Tywin's reputation is just really effective on the audience as well as in universe because Tywin acts like someone who's smart about the military, right? Yeah. He, he walks around and talks and looks like a good general. Like when you think of an impressive general, you think of a guy who looks like Tywin Lannister, like a bald, stern guy with his whiskers on his horse. Like it's just, an, it's a great image, right? But I think what Martin is showing us is the image is all there is. There's not actually much behind it. Once you test that image, it starts to fall apart. It does. And it does so splendidly. Man, it's so satisfying. But of course... Ultimately, though, the only thing that really saves Tywin from having his ass handed to him is that Roose Bolton is throwing the battle, but we'll get to that. I promise we'll get to that. It's going to be our ending conversation for this episode. So now we're into the Battle of the Green Fork itself. So let's, to so to Emmett's horror, let's strip away all the boring character stuff about Tyrion. It's actually not boring. I apologize for everything. And talk about the battle itself. And then we'll circle back around to Tyrion and his characterization in the battle and how Martin explores it in the form of battle. And to do this, let's first talk about the Lannister battle plan. So 
in military planning, some of you guys, and we do know there's some of you who have had some military experience, there is a concept known as, quote, backwards planning, meaning that you work your way from your end state backwards, developing the plan incrementally moving back step by step. So let's do that. So we know the end state is the destruction of, quote, Rob Stark's army. And how do you accomplish this? Well, Tywin's plan is to use the terrain, specifically the Green Fork River, and to have an unbalanced line of troops and these unbalanced in terms of their quality of soldiers, especially on the left flank. So he wants to lure Rob Stark towards attempting to own the libs on the left flank, fix the Stark army in place with pikemen, and then sweep around like a door with heavy cavalry trapping the Stark host and then pushing them into the river with his reserve force, thus drowning the army. Hmm. Tywin drowning his armies. I feel like I've heard something about that before. Is that a theme in Tywin land? Oh, whatever. Again, Tyrion doesn't actually learn the battle plan until after the battle itself, but this is Tywin recounting what he what he was planning from all along, which is a little suspect, but regardless. Quote, Lord Tywin drained his cup, his face expressionless. I put the least disciplined men on the left. Yes, I anticipated that they would break. Rob Stark is a green boy. Fuck you, Tywin. More like to be brave than wise. I'd hoped that if he saw our left collapse, he might plunge to the gap, eager for a rout. Once he was fully committed, Sir Kevin Lannister's pikes would wheel and take him in the flank, driving him into the river while I brought up the reserve. And to be fair, it's not a bad plan. But maybe, maybe let people know what's going on with your planning, Tywin. Maybe you are an overrated goddamn paperclip of a commander, Lord Tywin Lannister. That's great. And yeah, I mean, that's a great theme in the series that while you might have your specific reasons for keeping things secret, on the whole, secrecy destroys families and destroys any group that's trying to, to stay united and have one purpose. And you, you see that with uh, Duran and Ariane Martel in A Feast for Crows, where Duran has kept his secret plan hidden from Ariane all these years. And he has some sound reasons for it. But the end result is Ariane assumes that he mistrusts her and is trying to get rid of her as heir. And she comes up with her own terrible secret plan that interferes with his. So I think this is one of those classic cases of short term versus long-term success we've talked about before when it comes to the Lannisters, where Tywin has a keen eye for short-term success, but never thinks through the long-term ripple effects of his decisions. Oh, that's great, man, especially given the fact that this is a very, very short-term success for Lord Tywin Lannister. So let's talk about the battle formation itself. As Emmett so ably pointed out, and good job, dude, I know it's hard for you being kind of on the left wing, so to speak, of the battle itself. Let's talk about how the Lannisters are aligned for battle. So, on the far left, we have the Bernie Bro rabble who are out there in front of the main <laughs> line of troops. And they're out there for reasons that we'll desc- describe momentarily. Then you have Kevin Lannister as, as the neoliberal centrist shill in the middle with his about 10,000 heavy pikemen along with a few hundred horsemen and, and westernmen lords. Then, of course, you have the neoconservative right led by Sir Adam Marbrand with his heavy horse and knights on the right flank. And then the Trumpian... <laughs> I love the metaphor. Keep it going. You got this. I'm just going to power through. The Trumpian far right led by Tywin Lannister himself in reserve, waiting for everyone to eat themselves before committing to battle. Am I am I topical enough? I'm hoping I'm being super topical here. I just want to say Kevon as, as a neoliberal centrist chill is just, mwah. that's exactly what he is. The guy who will, he's not Tywin Lannister, but he'll he'll enable Tywin Lannister. He'll enable Donald Trump, even though he washes his hands clean. That's Rose Twitter is going to love you, Jeff, for the very first time. Oh, good. I can't wait to have all the roses enter my mentions. It's going to be so great. Cannot wait. Now, it's a bit unclear how the Northern Host is arrayed other than all the non-Bolton houses, and that's important, are arrayed forward with Bolton. Bolton forces seemingly in reserve or behind the main line of troops. 
And we could surmise that the Boltons don't engage the Lannister army here because the Bolton army that returns from the Red Wedding is the same size as it left. And additionally, we don't see any Bolton banners, or at least Tyrion doesn't see any Bolton banners on the battlefield. And it's so odd that the Boltons don't take any casualties, ain't it? I wonder why. Clearly, we're reading far too much into this. Always. That's what we are accused of most more than anything else is reading too much into the text. And here we are again, reading so, so much into this text. Live and don't learn. That's us. That is absolutely us. So what actually happens in this battle itself? And a good motto to kind of sum up what happens is that no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. So the northern host arrives. They boil over a hilltop and hurtle towards the Lancer vanguard. Lancer archers fire arrows at the charging northmen. The birdie bros led by Gurga Clegane advance and make contact with the charging northmen. Gregor Clegane and his own special vanguard, and they are very special, run into the wall of Karstark spears. Some of Gregor's men, is it the mountains boys here? Interesting, I don't know. They die, and Gregor's horse is killed, but not Gregor himself. Gregor rises with his great sword, and which I just imagine like Sauron from, you know, the first Lord of the Rings movie rising up and just kind of whacking his way through the host of elves and, and men and all that sort of stuff. So, he, of course, starts killing as Gregor Clegane does. Tyrion's clansmen reach the gaps in the northern lines that Gregor's men have created, and they cut their way through the Northmen. The northern army retreats backwards towards the hilltop they had just charged down from. Kevin Lannister then moves his pikes forward in support of the vanguard. Everyone pushes the northern army back. Then Tywin brings his reserve force of 500 knights forward, and they shatter the Northmen along the ridge. The northern army retreats. The Lannister army gathers up their wounded. And that is essentially the Battle of the Green Fork boiled down to its basic elements. Well said, sir. And that's, yeah, that's Martin gets across those details very, very clearly because you don't get too much fog of war in this first battle. Tyrion kind of always clearly seems to know what's going on. He has enough of a vantage point to have a good a good view of the battlefield. That's not necessarily hugely realistic, but I think it's important for this first battle so Martin can just cleanly, clearly get across what's happening because it's important we keep 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 track of the plot elements here. And this battle, I think, is as we've said before, is an interesting contrast with the Whispering Wood that's in Catalan's, Catalan's 10th chapter, which is going to be our, our chapter next week, and that the Whispering Wood is much more kind of uh, arty and abstract and is, is more about like the, the prose and poetry of it all and this one is more about like the the hard details and the the grounded military minutiae of everything but you know, there's still some great imagery at work here like we talked about the the iron rose that gave the, us the title for this episode which is a nice bit of wordplay because it's both an iron rose like a noun like a flower made of iron but also rose isn't a verb like you know to, to rise the iron rose like the iron rose up so that's just that's just really nice and right before that we get this great image of what grass the horses had left was heavy with dew, as if some passing god had scattered a bag of diamonds over the earth. That's just, that's really nice imagery, and that works not just to show off that George Martin can write really nice imagery, <laughs> but so you can see it, and you can see Martin constantly working in a visual sense in this battle. Like, how do I get across what this looks like so it's not just chaos to a reader who might not have military experience and might not be able to just ins instinctively, intuitively imagine a battlefield? How do I make this look right? And for me, as someone who's a neophyte in military matters and never served myself... Even as uh, even as I, I can't grasp all the strategic details as quickly or as well as you can, I can immediately visually grasp it, and I think that's that's what Martin is trying to do here. Yeah, it's a testament to George that he makes this battle understandable in multiple ways. And then, of course, it's another testament to George that in Catelyn 10, our next chapter, he writes another battle chapter, so to speak, but he does it in a much different way. So it doesn't get boring. So we're not getting kind of the minutia, the kind of in the dirt and in the mud sort of perspective that Tyrion has. We have someone standing aside from the battle itself, observing it, and the woods have whispers. And man, I can't wait to get to that chapter. It's going to be so good. But we, of course, have to talk about the after 
after action of the battle itself. Did the plan succeed? Did Tywin Lannister win the battle? Well, according to Kevin, who is not at all a toady, this is a great victory for Lord Tywin Lannister. But is it? <laughs> no. Because Tywin says, I'd hoped that if Robb Stark saw our left collapse, he might plunge into the gap eager for a rout. The Stark boy proved more cautious than I expected. So yes, Tywin wins a, quote, victory, but it's not the victory that he even himself wanted to win. So it's not a victory on his own terms, because ultimately it's a simple tactical win for Tywin. Sure, he drives the Northmen back, but that's really it. And yes, the Northmen do take casualties. Because at the end of the day, defeating Tywin Lannister in this battle was never Robb Stark's objective, as we find out at the end of this chapter, where, where Sir Adam Marbrand comes up and announces that they've taken captives, and Tywin has a question. And the boy? Sir Adam hesitated. The Stark boy was not with them, my lord. They say he crossed the twins with the great part of his horse, riding hard for Riverrun. A green boy, T remembered, more like to be brave than wise. And man, that's just like, for me, it's such a thrilling moment in the narrative, right? Because you're like, it, it gets you, right? It's so satisfying that Tywin gets this comeuppance. We're going to be talking a lot more about that in Tyrion 9, because that entire chapter is just like comeuppance for Tywin Lannister. And as he realizes, oh, I am, I am on the brink of losing everything right now because of my own folly and because of my family's folly. And yeah, I love the little detail that Sir Adam hesitated, even though Sir Adam is a generally stand-up dude and everyone likes him and he's not in danger of losing his position. But even he knows, oh, Tywin's going to be pissed when I tell him this. <laughs> this is going to make him very unhappy. And it is because, yeah, you make a great point. This is The end of this chapter exemplifies the difference between a, a, a simple tactical win and an overall strategic victory because Tywin has claimed the former but not the latter. And it's Martin saying, hey, armies and wars are not just about like who has the most men at the end of the day. And I, you know, I totaled it up and I have 9,000 men and you have 8,000 men. So I win the war. And that's <laughs> that's kind of how I would think about like war if I was a little kid or playing Risk for the first time. It's, it's a very like simplistic and intuitive way of thinking about it. But it's just it's just not true. War is politics by other means. The real ends here are political you know, getting House Stark back in the Lannister fold, or as Tywin will say later, dealing with the Starks quickly so he can move on to the real threat, which is Stannis. So his goal here is not to defeat the army in detail and kill every last northerner. His goal is specifically to deal with Rob, and the fact that he has not dealt with Rob makes this a, a failure for him, no matter how many Northmen he killed. Agreed. It absolutely is a failure on Tywin's part. Yes, it's a tactical victory in that he defeats Roose Bolton in battle. Great, great job, Tywin. Awesome job, man. I mean, I'm so proud of you, brother. But no, you, you shouldn't be proud of him. And Tywin himself, he would never admit that he made a mistake and he does not admit that he made a mistake in Tyrion 9. But under the surface, Tywin has to know that he has failed here. And that's so fucking satisfying for us. And I admit that at this point in the story, when I was reading for the first time, I was a total, utter Stark fanboy. And I'm, I'm cool with that, at least in my first read. Oh, I agree. And that's part of it. Like, I so vividly remember the first time the Northern War Horn sounded and the Lannister trumpets answered, but they sounded pale and weak. I was like, hell, hell yeah, go north. That's <laughs> awesome. These Northmen are going to take down these these proud, overproud Lannisters with their gold and their, you know, their inflated reputations and just, just bring them down a notch. And, and that's exactly what happens. Of course, I mean, the Starks are going to get their own reversal when Rob's victories don't prevent Ned from being executed. And we're going to talk more about that in the closing chapters of this book. But you, yeah, you definitely get a sense of like, Tywin's reputation as a hot air balloon that has been punctured and that there's like the gas and the air is slowly leaking out and you, you really see it, it come together at the, at, the, at the end of this chapter. And we're, obviously we're going to see much more of that later on. And yeah, Tywin doesn't admit he made a mistake, but in Tyrion's next chapter, Tyrion sees Tywin sweating, which Tywin never yes. does. So it's like, oh, that's how you, he, he knows he made a mistake, even though he's not willing to admit it. 
they have my son, which was done so well by Charles Dance in Game of Thrones season one. So let's kind of circle back around to talk a little bit about Tyrion Lannister in the battle itself, because as I said before, it's important that the battle itself exists and to kind of talk about talk about it irrespective of Tyrion, Tyrion's role in the battle itself to kind of explain it for you folks who might not be as fully grounded in the military side. And that's totally fine. I totally get it. It's totally fine. But ultimately, A Song of Ice and Fire is a story about characters. So what does this battle mean for our favorite dwarf in this character? And all of these kind of stuff that's going into the battle and the tactics is not meant to denigrate Tyrion's legitimate bravery on the battlefield because Tyrion does some pretty fucking thrilling heroics in this battle. And this all despite the fact that he, uh, and this all despite his physical disability. And Tyrion, of course, is exceptionally conscious of that physical disability. And how much more so would he be on the battlefield itself, a place where he really doesn't belong, but he ends up engaging and being present in multiple battles going forward from here. And I love how Martin shows Tyrion's consciousness of his own disability through him being fitted for armor just prior to the battle. He's wearing mismatched, he's wearing mismatched plate of the finest and rudest materials matchable and rudest materials imaginable. It's it's motley, right? It's symbolizing how Tyrion feels about himself. He's a joke, and he's a joke on the battlefield, especially. That's a great point. It's just like in Dance with Dragons when he has to wear these sewn-together bits of clothing when he's he's uh, portraying himself as Yolo the dwarf. And uh, it, it humiliates him, and it hurts deep down, because, yeah, that's often the role that people of his stature have to play in this world, as, as Penny will tell him, is you, you play the joke and you make the big people laugh, and maybe they won't hurt you. And Tyrion just hates that thought and hates that he ever might have to live that way. So I think that's Martin subtly introducing that concept. And it also just, again, sums up those, you know, class dimensions we were talking about earlier of these elites being on top of everything, but also kind of incompetent where like Tyrion, what's your nice fine plate doing for you at Casterly Rock? Huh? It's just sitting there. The rock was never going to be in danger. This was always going to be the kind of area you would fight and would be out in the Riverlands against another noble house. So that, that armor is just decorative. It doesn't actually exist for a functional purpose the way this armor does. It's mismatched, but it kept Tyrion alive. That spike is ridiculous. And as many <laughs> people have pointed out, it doesn't really make any sense. But hey, it saved Tyrion's life, which is fancy armor Casterly Rock would not have done. Absolutely. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that, how that's so ridiculous and how people have said it's unrealistic on the battlefield. But I think Martin wrote in specifically because he wanted some sort of thing in the in the plot in order to save Tyrion's life in the battle itself. But I also think it's like a really nice touch that when the mountain clansmen are preparing to ride into battle, that they beginning that they begin shouting, half man, half man for Tyrion after he explain after he explains the plan to them. And of course Tyrion, because he's Tyrion, has to integrate the whole part about, you know, go ahead and cut off their cocks and throw into the river and stuff like that. Stuff that makes Shagus and Abdul very, very happy, I'm assuming. I think ultimately Martin is, wants us to consider that Tyrion's disability cuts both ways. Yes, it makes him feel like like an unlovable, hateful joke, kind of the gesture, the joker, the person that he's kind of shamed of being. But it also simultaneously gives him a unique identity for his supporters to rally behind. And it's so interesting that half man thing doesn't actually pan out for Tyrion. He never decides to utilize that in his future political machinations in A Clash of Kings. Yeah, that's the really sad part, right? Is you see a chance here for Tyrion to actually be beloved by the public, or at least a large portion of the public anyway he never was before. 
And if he had only followed his own advice to John about, you know, wearing his his weakness like armor, he could have pulled it off. Like, think about Rob. What's Rob's big public weakness? It's his age, right? Everyone thinks he's green. Steveren Frey looked at him with, like, a faint flicker of amusement in his eyes when Rob said, <laughs> I'm commanding this army at the twins. Like, sure you are, kid. So what do his supporters do? They make it his strength. The Young Wolf. That's his name. That's his nickname. That's what he goes by. Young is right in there. He's not running from it. It makes him more impressive because he's doing all this at, at this at this young age. So if Tyrion had had taken this opportunity to craft, as you say, this new unique identity, he could have done a lot of great thing with it. A lot of great things with it. Obviously, Tyrion will take a, a ton of bullshit for his stature his whole life. And that's, you know, nothing excuses that and Tyrion's right to be angry and resentful in response to that. But he's wrong that he is just utterly doomed to be hated because of it. Like this image of half-man, half-man. That's a very different image from the twisted monkey demon, as he's described in The Clash of Kings. It's much more positive. Like, he could have built on this in Clash and Storm by framing himself not as an evil counselor, but as this, like, underdog war hero who's, like, you know, really kind of much more like you, the peasants, who's you've had to put up with stuff, I've had to put up with stuff, too. And I rooted out corruption, I got rid of Jano Slint, I threw Pycelle in jail, I saved the capital from another sack. That's a narrative he could have pursued, but he didn't, because like Stannis, he's convinced that he's going to be hated no matter what. So why should I try to rule through love? No one's going to love me. I have to rule through fear. And if he at least tried, he could have won some public sympathy. I mean, look, Tywin is determined to hate him. Cersei is determined to hate him. That's not going to matter. Tyrion can't change that no matter what he does. But the mob might be swayed. And that, in turn, could have impacted Tyrion's trial in A Storm of Swords and his his nihilism and certainty that the world is useless in A Dance with Dragons. This is not, of course, entirely Tyrion's responsibility, but he takes no actions to make it better. Yeah. And, you know, in Clash, though, when Bronn or uh, when Sir Jaslyn Bywater reveals that the people are calling him the Demon Monkey Man, he's just so hurt by it. But at the same time, as much as you're like, yeah, that's, it's not true that Tyrion is the Demon Monkey Man. He has the ability to frame a new political identity that would inspire people, that would want to make people join his side and would kind of give him a, kind of a leg up, so to speak. Kind of a terrible image for Tyrion because he's a dwarf. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize for everything. Again, half man is being used in the scene not as an insult, but as like a marker of pride. Like the Matt Clans are like, yeah, he's our half man. We're going to war with him. He's going to make us rich. <laughs> for once, it's not an insult. And that could be a glorious window of opportunity for Tyrion, but he doesn't take it for understandable reasons. Of course. And of course, half man again is shouted again at the Battle of the Blackwater. But Tyrion at that point has kind of lost the ability to kind of manage things as Tywin shows up just a few hours after that. So in the battle itself, Tyrion is performing feats of heroics throughout, despite his disability. And even though his clansmen, the very people who are shouting, half man, half man, go berserk and charge past their leader into battle because that's just the clansman way of war. Tyrion kills one, possibly two people in the battle itself, and he gets a goddamn knight, probably a Manderly, given that he that this particular soldier is yelling Eddard and he's a knight, and the Manderlys have a knightly, have a knightly tradition that Martin probably had not fully dreamed up at that point. But regardless, this man, probably a Manderly guy, actually yields to Tyrion in the battle itself. But though Tyrion survives the battle, he comes away convinced of his suspicions over what Tywin actually wanted in the battle. As he asks his father after the battle itself, we were supposed to be butchered, were we not? And that's really kind of hard for Tyrion that he ultimately he has the suspicions at the initial start of the battle, essentially confirmed by things that actually occur in the battle itself. So Tyrion is still 
loyal to his family at some level, but at the same time, he's loyal to a family that wants him dead. That is going to be very strong thematic tissue that is going to be running throughout Tyrion's storyline in Clash and Storm and on into Dance as well. As you say, Tyrion's actually our main POV in terms of battles, despite physically seeming like he shouldn't belong in a battlefield. We see the Green Fork through him here. We see the Blackwater through him in A Clash of Kings. We're going to see the Battle of Unf- Battle of Fire unfold through his eyes in The Winds of Winter. And yeah, it's interesting, his his relationship to that concept, because part of him finds himself unexpectedly enjoying it. Like he says, he, he feels the battle fever at the Blackwater, which Jamie had told about, but he never thought to experience himself. And he shakes his axe at the stars, and the stars call back, half man! And it's, <laughs> it's like the world is fine with him. Finally. It's like the universe excel, itself is calling out this nickname to him that he can finally accept, but he just, he can't quite convince himself and he can't quite make it work. Because as you say, after the battle, all that kind of good feeling goes away. It sours and dries up because he realizes, oh, I was supposed to be killed. And then after the Blackwater, oh, I'm just being shoved in this horrific field hospital to recover (laughs) while my dad takes all the credit and kicks me out of the Tower of the Hand. So by the time he gets to the Battle of Fire, Tyrion is once more manipulating things to end up on top. But like there's not, not even the pretense of earning people's respect or moving up in the world. He's just doing it because he can. Right. So because, because he's convinced himself after situations like this that there's never going to be anything genuine for him. Yeah, you made that great point in your essays about Tyrion, about in Tyrion and the Dance with Dragons is basically acting that way that he's looking, he's playing with people and being smart and clever, not for any greater purpose or good, but because that's the only thing he really knows how to do. And it's now in a nihilistic context. And I think that's going to play out very strongly in the Battle of Fire itself, especially when you have like events and in the Winds of Winter that we know about where Tyrion is watching people die and he's like, eh, whatever. He's watching, you know, trebuchets throw dead bodies into the city of Marine. He's like, wow, that's, 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 wow. That's, that's, that's something. That like he's, yeah, he's watching slaves being tortured and he thinks to himself like this horrible thought. Well, every slave has a choice. You could choose to die. Yes, yes. <laughs> guess you must want to be a slave because you're still here which is just first of all it's like a really noxious thing that some people in the real world still say about slavery Mm -hmm. and it's it's just horrible but you can see that's that the seeds for that kind of attitude are in book one where Tyrion is much more flippant and dismissive about that kind of thing by the time you get to book five he's like actively cruel yeah and it's it's in large part because he becomes convinced over the course of the first three books that no matter how much love he puts out into the world it's never going to come back agreed and you know, Tyrion's response to all of that mockery and all that hatred that he receives from the world is, you know, japing and is snarking. It's a shield that he uses. And I don't know whether this is intentional. Wor- this is an intentional word choice on George's part when he was writing this chapter. But I found Tywin's wording about the feigned retreat connecting with Tyrion's perception of Shay faking her orgasm in this chapter. Because he, as I read earlier about how he suspects that Shay's delight is feigned, but she did it so well that he did not that it did not matter. That much truth he did not crave. And then later his father says, a feigned route is less convincing, his father said. And I am not inclined mm-hmm. to trust my plans to a man who consorts with cell swords and savages. So does Tyrion want to explicitly know the truth whether Tywin wanted him dead or whether he wants to know the truth, whether Shay really is his girlfriend and really enjoyed the sexual experience that they have. You know, again, that snarking and japing is a shield that Tyrion uses to keep his suspicions from being proved true because that would be so devastating for him as a person if he realizes that everyone is feigning whatever, feigning multiple things in order to get him killed or not actually having any affection for him. That's a great connection, man. I never put that together, but... I wouldn't be surprised if that's deliberate. The word the word choice is identical, feigned in both cases. And Martin does love his his metaphors for sex, sex and swordplay, as as I think Jamie says at one point that they're they're connected or 
what does Brandon Stark say to Barbary? It's you know, no, no more beautiful sight than a bloody sword, referring <laughs> to his penis. But, you know, so you see those connections between sex and battle, I think, frequently in the series. So I, I think that's probably right on. And it fits Tyrion's character so well that, like, he's smart enough to know he's being lied to, but he's vulnerable enough to still not want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's caught in this horrible in-between state where he can't have the ignorance of... He can't have the bliss of ignorance on one side, but he can't have the genuine bliss of self-actualization on the other side. He's just in the middle and he just gets crushed there. Yeah, ultimately at this juncture in the story, I see you, Jinx, Tyrion doesn't want to know the full ugly truth. But by the time Storm rolls around after Shay has, quote, betrayed him his and his father has decreed his death, he will eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the bite ain't going to be a sweet one, man. It ain't going to be a sweet one indeed. Perfectly said, sir. And that about wraps us up for the depth section. We can move on into foreshadowing and groundwork. And there's, there's quite a bit of that in this chapter. As we said, this is kind of a culminating moment for Tyrion in book one, but it also lays the also sows the seeds for where his character will go in the books to come. So we have this line from Shay that she uses the first time they have sex. My giant of Lannister. Mm. Yeah. Tyrion. Shay uses this to describe Tyrion. It's, it doesn't come from Tyrion. Shay is the one who actually emanates it. And she's the one who comes with the wording. And boy, oh boy, does that work as fantastic and brutal setup for George to break Tyrion in his trial when Shay testifies against him. Quote, he used me every way there was. And he used to make me tell him how big he was. My giant, I had to call him my giant of Lannister. And that's actually, Ooh. if I'm not mistaken, I believe that is the moment where Tyrion actually breaks and says, I confess, get this whore out of here. I confess. Like, that's the moment that it gets him. Yeah. And the man breaks if I'm a sparrow from Septon Marable. Yeah. And that's just so good. And uh, yeah, I love that detail that Shay comes up with it because that shows how good Shay is at her job. That she reads Tyrion the needle and goes, oh, what, what's going to make him happy? What's, what's going to make him just like want to keep me around forever? If I call him my giant because he's vulnerable in this way. And you could call that cruel. It's certainly cruel when she brings it up again at the trial. But again, this is her job. This is how you make a living in Shay's position by keeping Tyrion interested in you. By wanting, you know, she wants Tyrion to take her back to court or Casterly Rock or wherever he's going to go next. She must be already be thinking about that. Oh, he's into me. He wants a paramour. I can use this. And there's there's nothing dishonest about that because Tyrion is the one who set up these terms in the first place mm-hmm. and is basically asking Shay to lie to him and then blaming her for lying to him. <laughs> and this is this classic toxic mindset. And uh, yeah, that, that that giant of Lannister stuff is, is so brutal. Tyrion's last two chapters in Storm is really where a lot of the stuff we're talking about pays off. And it's just like one domino of horror after another. Agreed there. But there is a payoff that we find out in the very next chapter, though, about Tywin's thinking about Jamie and his conduct on the battlefield. Yeah, I love this. Uh, Tywin is more right when he knows that he says your brother Jamie would be eager to come to grips with Rob Stark. But as we'll see next week, that's not actually a good thing. <laughs> Jamie's recklessness and eagerness for a fight causes him to ride right into Rob's trap at the Whispering Wood. So as we said in Tyrion 7, you really pick up on reread how... Tywin is praising Jamie, but for all the wrong reasons. Like he's praising the worst aspects of Jamie instead of the best aspects, which is why he's thrown for a loop in a storm of swords when Jamie adopts a different worldview and says, I want to shed those worst aspects and focus on the best aspects. And those best aspects, Dad, have nothing to do with you. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, Jamie is going to cross swords with Rob Stark in the very next chapter, or at least his bannerman. So what's that actually going to net Tywin Lancer, except for that his son is going to be a hostage until a storm until the end of a clash of kings? And speaking of the Lannister men, we also get a nice little character touch with with, with Uncle Kevon in this, this chapter that I really like. Uh, this is not the only time that Kevon will act as Tywin's voice in council. Tyrion notes the same dynamic going on in the small council in the Storm of Swords, where you know, 
Kevon has never had a thought that Tywin didn't have first. And this is in part just a realistic take on how politicians operate. Like all, I think all smart politicians have someone that they can use to say things for them that they don't want to personally be, be seen say. That's that's just a useful skill. But it's also setting up Kevin specifically as Tywin's sycophantic shadow, as Jenna will describe him in A Feast for Crows. And that's something he'll wrestle with when he becomes a significant character in his own right after Tywin's death. And while neither of us like Kevin Lannister <laughs> as a person, you've written very well about that, I think he becomes a really interesting character in Feast and Dance because you can see him going, wow, I've lived my whole life for just another human being. Who am I now, now that I'm in charge, now that I have to be the Lannister? Right. And it's interesting because he takes a somewhat different role than Tywin Lannister. He can't compel people to do what he wants by staring at them and by, you know, <laughs> being kind of this dude who's has a very fearsome reputation. His reputation is entirely as Tywin's shadow. When he's when he comes into his own power as regent for Tommen for Tommen Baratheon, it's interesting because when I was writing that essay about Kevin Lannister back in the day, that kind of idea of Kevin being Tywin's shadow was something that was very instrumental in kind of crafting this idea that Kevin Lannister was the one who was behind Cersei's Walk of Shame because that is something that Tywin Lannister did with Titus's mistress, her his unnamed mistress that never gets a name, which is another story altogether. But at the same time, it's a very Lannister move that Kevin makes, a very Tywin Lannister move especially that Kevin makes. And that is important and it's great and it's a great setup we have here with Kevin acting as Tywin's toady and then trying to imagine what Tywin would do in the situations where Tywin is long dead at that time in the story. I think uh, whether Kevon himself was culpable for the walk is going to be a great theory discussion section yes. when we get to a dance with dragons for sure. Because I completely agree with you and I think there's some really interesting evidence to go into there. And it really sums up how he is ultimately just another version of Tywin even as he's trying kind of to be something different. Anyway, back to Tyrion himself. There's this line in this, this chapter and he's comparing himself to Jaime and how Jaime has always been able to make men follow him. And Tyrion can't and he says he bought loyalty with gold and compelled obedience with his name. And of course, that's already kind of paid off with Braun, and we'll continue to as the Tyrion Braun relationship continues. But rereading this time, it struck me as a foreshadowing of his relationship with Brown Ben Plum to escape slavery in a dance with dragons. But what's interesting in that situation is he's buying his loyalty not with directly with gold, but the promise of gold way in the future. Like when when Tyrion enters Brown Ben's tent, he's not Tyrion Lannister, son of Lord Tywin. He's an escaped slave, but he's still able to to make good on these ideas. He, he promises the gold and he promises, I'm going to make good on my name. I'm going to, I'm going to conquer Casterly Rock for myself and turn its resources over to sell swords. And that's such an interesting contrast to what he's doing now, which is just drawing directly from dad's largesse, just drawing from the bank. I got this Amex credit card from my dad. He says I can spend it anywhere I want. But by the time he gets to dance, he's completely outside that system. So when the story starts, Tyrion has direct access to Lannister wealth, but no real control over it. By the time you get to the end of Dance, he doesn't have that access anymore. So he's like, fuck it, I'm going to go all in on controlling it. But what I think is really fascinating about that is that what if Tyrion is doing the kind of Tywin role with the clansmen here where, oh, there's a big battle of fire that is erupting. We really need to ensure that we are a part of this battle itself, good clansmen of the Second Sons. We need to kind of show ourselves to be extraordinarily loyal to Queen Daenerys Targaryen. Why don't we all charge the battle itself and why don't we all engage there? Because... Like we said about the Mountain Clansmen, the best way to ensure the to ensure that you do not accumulate future losses or the potential that you'd have to pay your subcontractors is to kill them before you actually have to pay them themselves. I do wonder whether Brown Ben Plum's days are numbered due to the fact that Tyrion ain't going to want to pay that guy when he gets to Westeros. Couldn't agree more. And even if Brown Ben survives the battle, 
the, the minute Tyrion gets in Danny's good graces, he's gonna be like, "See that brown gin guy, brown Ben guy? Remember how he betrayed you? Yeah, go ahead and kill him. <laughs> I owe him, I owe him money." And yeah, there's that moment in Dance when he's signing all like these contracts. He's gonna pay all this gold to all the various members of the Second Sons. Yeah, I don't think I don't think a single coin of that is actually gonna be paid. And as you say, he he learned all the wrong lessons from his dad, and he's he's putting them to use. But speaking of the Battle of Fire and the build up to it in the Winds of Winter, there's some interesting connections between those released Tyrion Winds chapters and what we see here. Yeah, it's really fun. So George R. R. Martin released the Tyrion's George R. R. Martin released Tyrion's second The Winds of Winter chapter in 2014, I want to say, in which feature which features the Battle of Fire itself from Tyrion Lannister's perspective. And there's two interesting connections to Tyrion 8 and specifically to Shay and to the Battle of the Green Fork itself. And the first is that Tyrion remembers Shay when Penny says, I never meant to make you angry, Penny said. Forgive me. I'm frightened is all. She touched his hand. Tyrion wrenched away. I'm frightened. Those were the same words Shay had used. Her eyes were big as eggs and I swallowed every bit of it. I knew what she was. I told Bronn to find a woman for me and he brought me Shay. His hands curled to fists, and Shay's face swam up before him, grinning. Then the chain was tightening around her throat, the golden hands digging deep into her flesh as her own hands fluttered against his face with all the force of butterflies. If he had a chain to, if he had a chain to hand, if he had a crossbow, a dagger, anything, he would have. He might have. He. And it was only then that Tyrion heard the shouts. He was lost in a black rage, drowning in a sea of memory. Well, that doesn't make me feel especially great about Penny's future in The Winds of Winter, for sure. <laughs> no, that's... But, that, man, you did a great job with that. I was thinking while you are reading that, man, how can anyone not like how Tyrion's chapters are being written now? Like, I get not liking him as a person as much as you might have earlier, but that... Oh, that's so well done. Like, his just descent into that black rage and the sea of memory and that implication that he can't quite spell out to himself that... If he'd had a weapon in his hand at that moment, he would have killed Penny for the crime of accidentally reminding him of Shay. Right. It, wow. It's so dark. I mean, I love Tyrion's dark turn to Dance Dragons. I mean, I love it and I hate it at the same time. I love it for the narrative reasons, but I also kind of feel really bad for him at the same time. And it is hard to read at points, especially when we get to Tyrion 6 and Dance Dragons, but that's many years down the road from now. So there is, but to kind of transition away from that, um, oh, excuse me, sorry. Um, yes. You're, you, yes, you're absolutely correct about that. Martin does a great job of digging into Tyrion's black rage here. And then Tyrion's remembering this line from Tyrion 8 where it says, Shay was shaking him by the shoulder. My lord, she whispered, wake up, my lord, I'm frightened. So that's not saying good things about Penny's future fate as we talked about before. What's also interesting in that The Winds of Winter release chapter is that Tyrion remembers the Green Fork over the Blackwater, which is fascinating to me. So the quote is, and it's kind of a long quote, I apologize, but quote, it was queer, but Tyrion remembered the Green Fork much better than the Blackwater. It was my first. You never remember, you never forget your first. He remembered the fog drifting over the river, wending through the reeds like pale white fingers and the beauty of that sunrise. He remembered that as well. Stars strewn across a purple sky, the grass glittering like glass with, with the morning dew, red splendor in the east. He remembered the touch of Shay's fingers as she helped Pod with Tyrion's mismatched armor. That bloody helm, like a bucket, <laughs> like a bucket with a spike. That spike had saved him, though, had won him his first victory. But Grote and Penny had never looked half as silly as he might have looked that as he must have looked that day. Shay had called him fearsome when she saw him in the steel, mind you. How could I have been so blind, so deaf, so stupid? I should have known better than to do my thinking with my cock. Yeah, I think that's very interesting that Tyrion specifically not just remembers the Green Fork, but remembers it better than the Blackwater, which is counterintuitive because the Blackwater is what we remember more. Because the Blackwater is, you know, the big 
incredible battle scene of the series so far. It might be topped in, in the final books, but as it stands, the Blackwater is the battle scene that everyone talks about in this series. And it, that I think for me, that is the same for the show. But Tyrion remembers the Green Fork better. And I wonder if part of why is because Shay was there. Mm. Whereas in the Blackwater, Shay's not there. So he, he has this memory of his first battle. As you say, you never forget your first, which again... That's, that's sex talk right there. That's what you say about the first time you have sex. You never forget your first. And he's linking the two, sex and battle, together. So it's like he has this beautiful memory of the green fork, the stars strewn across the sky, the grass glittering like glass, which is just wonderful wordplay. But it's poisoned now because Shay was there. Mm. And look at what happened with Shay. So now even, even the good memories in Tyrion's past, he can't have them anymore. He can't access them emotionally because they're just filtered through all the horrible shit in his life. And through this, not just loathing of Shay, but his, his self-loathing. How could I have been so blind, so deaf, so stupid? So like you have these battle memories, which, you know, obviously war is hell and not all battle memories are good. But I think a lot of people, a lot of veterans who have been through war have these, these memories that they hold on to and tell stories about and take comfort in, even if the event themselves, even, the, even if the event itself was not fun while you were experiencing it. But Tyrion doesn't even get to have that. He doesn't even get to have these stories he gets to tell. It's all just horror. So as, as he says in the show, the future is shit, just like the past. <laughs> That's so, so true, man. Yeah, it's interesting that Tyrion is the character that's exposed most to battle here. And this is his first battle. And that's interesting that he remembers his first. And I think your analysis in comparison to it being the first time you have sex is really interesting, too, because, of course, it's the first time that he has sex with Shay, too. But, of course, that battle itself, though, was brought on not against the Stark host, but against a much, much different northern commander. Yes, indeed. And that takes us to our theory and discussion section for the episode. And so, Jeff... Roos Bolton may be an unambiguous villain who betrays and murders his king at the Red Wedding in A Storm of Swords, but rereading this chapter, hey, at least he does one thing correctly. He gives it his all as commander of the Northern Infantry, fighting on behalf of all Stark men against their hated Lannister foe, right? Right? Oh, Emmett. Oh, Emmett, you sweet summer child. Are you, are you sitting still? Are you sitting down? Well, yes, sir. I have to reveal something to you. Roos Bolton through this battle. What? I know, right? So crazy. No, I'm kidding. Okay, fine. Let me back up because I can already hear your objection. But Jeff, you say, grabbing a Pringles can and dumping the bottom of crumbles into your triangle-shaped mouth. Didn't George say, yes, yes. Okay, George did address this in a so-spake marm from 2001. And let me just read the entire exchange here. So a person asked George, there are some that think that Roos had treachery in mind from the minute Rob left Winterfell, that his battle against Tywin was against Rob's wishes and meant to weaken the other northern houses. I believe he first thought of treachery after Stannis was defeated and Highgarden joined with the Lannisters. Could you clarify any of this, or will this be something that will be revealed later on? George R. Martin responds, Lord Bolton may have well thought of all sorts of things in his mind. Whether or not he would act on any of those thoughts is another matter. Roos is the sort of fellow who keeps his thoughts to himself. And the best sword is the one that cuts both ways, he might tell you. Take the Battle of the Green Fork. Had his night march taken Lord Tywin unawares and won the battle, he would have smashed the Lannisters and become the hero of the hour, while if it failed, well, you see what happened. The only way he could lose there would be if he were captured or slain himself, and he did his best to minimize the chances of that. So, case closed, right, Emmett? I'm just totally wrong in my suspicion that Roose Bone threw this battle. So you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoif. 
No. No. Not quite done yet. No, no, no. It's not plotting to portray Rob Stark with Tywin Lannister and Walter Frey or stabbing Roose, or stabbing Rob Stark through the literal heart. Sure, I get it. Roose Bolton has not committed to the Lannister cause at this point in the story. This probably happens after he takes Harren Hall from Amory Lorch in A Clash of Kings and after Tywin wins at the Blackwater. But can we come to some common fucking ground that what Roose Bolton does in the battle is either A, stupid, or B, throwing the battle? And if there's something we know about Bruce Bolton, he's not stupid. In fact, when he has the motivation to want to win a battle, he ends up being extremely smart. And we know this because we actually see this when he takes Hall in a clash of kings by infiltrating men into the castle as, quote, prisoners with the intent to open the gates and let his army into the castle. Yes, at some month down the road, I will greatly expand on this in some part of my long overdue The Broken Country essay series, which is, you know, only about three months late at this point. Ahem. Anyways, let's get into Bruce Bolton's conduct as a commander in the battle itself. And of course, we don't exactly have a point of view in the Northern Army, but we do know some things about the battle from Tyrion's point of view. Namely, one, the composition of the forces that are in front of Tyrion. Tyrion thinks, quote, he glimpsed the bull moose of the Hornwoods, the Karstark sunburst, Lord Curban's battle axe, and the mailed fist of the Glovers, and the twin towers of Frey, blue on gray. And again, as I was pointing out in the battle analysis, it's worth pointing out which banner is absent. The flayed men of the Dreadfort. Where the fuck are they in the battlefield? Okay, second thing. The tactics of the Northmen in the battle are just a little suspect, just, just a little bit. So they steal a march on the Lancers overnight and remain one mile north of Tywin. Neat tactics, right? I mean, he gets the jump on Tywin, except as Steve Abel kind of pointed out in his essay and analysis on Game of Thrones Tyrion 8, why in the world didn't Roos keep pushing forward on into Tywin's camp and actually win the goddamn battle? Instead, Roos allows the Lancer army to form up in battle array. But wait, B. Fish, your trying mouth says, forming new arguments. Roos Bolton is a cautious commander. He would take stock in things before proceeding forward. He's cautious. Yeah, except he ain't, because we learn immediately when they finally meet in battle, been gathered on a hilltop, and then, quote, the drums were so near that the beat crept under his skin and set his hands to twitching. Bronn drew his longsword, and suddenly the enemy was there before them, boiling over the tops of the hills, advancing with measured tread behind a wall of shields and pikes. The fuck? The Northmen are on top of a hill, and then they come charging down from the high ground to engage the larger Lannister force on equal terrain with the Lannisters? Why? What's the advantage of that? The high ground gives the Northern Foot a chance against the larger Lannister army, an army that has a significantly higher proportion of horsemen and knights on the battlefield itself. You know, historically, the Battle of Hastings is that King Harold, the English king, very nearly won the battle by keeping his mostly infantry force atop the high ground until his house carls charged down the hill against the Norman knights of William the Conqueror, thus ending the reign of Harold and ensuring the formation of the new Norman kingdom in England itself. Back at the Green Fork itself, there really is no tactical advantage for rushing down the hill. And it's really fucking uncautious, right? <sighs> then as Gregor and the rest of the vanguard are engaging the northern host, a strange, a very strange event occurs. Quote, a flight of arrows descended on them. Where they came from, Tyrion cannot say, but they fell on Stark and Lannister alike, rattling off armor or finding flesh. Now, who would fire arrows on friends and foes alike on the battlefield? Now, perhaps Tywin, of course, he's... He's a cruel guy. He might be able to do that, but I kind of doubt it. Tywin needed the mountain clansmen to break along the east bank of the Trident so that Kevin's pikemen could fix the northern host on the riverbank while Adam Marbrand enveloped the Stark host and Tywin pushed through with his reserve cavalry, pushing everyone into the Green Fork itself. Now, Tywin Lancer did have archers that were firing arrows from the Lancer right flank into the charging northern infantry, but at the same time, if the arrows are being fired from the south, the clansmen would have no reason to retreat backwards in the direction of the arrow fire. So where do the arrows come from? 
well, there's a suspicious lack of Bolton men on the battlefield itself. Could they be coming? Could they be coming from the Bolton side? Uh, yes, because at no point does Bruce Bolton commit any, any of his large, which is almost 4,000 soldiers to the battle itself. And that instead, all of the casualties are felt by other Northern houses and their fray allies, as is indicated by the after action report of battlefield casualties. Quote, my liege, we have taken some of their commanders, Lord Kerwin, Sir Willis Manderley, Harry and Karstark, four frays, Lord Horn was dead, and I fear Bruce Bolton has escaped us. So that is the battle itself in terms of why I think that Bruce Bolton threw it. There are a number of very strange events that occur in the battle. I do. I can admit that maybe Martin is kind of playing a little bit fast and loose with the battle itself so that he has suspect tactics so that he gives the advantage to the Lannisters to win the battle because they have to win the tactical battle in order to have the kind of shoe drop for Tywin Lannister in this chapter. But that is the tactics. That is why I think the Bruce Bolton through the battle itself, but there are political ramifications that are worth considering too. Wonderfully done, Jeff. You know, I remember reading Stephen's essay, Stephen Atwell's essay on Tyrion 8, as you mentioned earlier. And before he got into talking about the Green Fork, he said, you know, I just want to say, I just agree with Brendan Beefish and everything he said about this battle. And I was like, Brendan Beefish, who's that? Because I just started reading a Song of Ice and Fire stuff online. And that's that's what led me to look your stuff up and start reading it and, and get really into your writing. Oh, that's awesome. Was, it was, was Atwell's little name drop because, he, like I said, he was the first one I was reading. And yeah, I've always loved this theory. It makes it makes so much sense with the details we get from the battle, with Bruce Bolton's character, with, as you say, the contrast with how Bruce conducts himself when he actually wants to do something right. Like, this is really sloppy for him. Like, And the detail that really stood out to me when you were saying is like, yeah, why wouldn't you just keep going at that point? Like, you, the whole point of a night march is to catch them by surprise, right? Yeah. Like that's why you do it. Obviously, your soldiers are going to be exhausted from doing that. The only advantage is the other army's sleeping. Right. And even, even less ready for you. So why would you just stop? like a football field away and just start blowing your horns to get them to come get you. You've negated any advantage you would have of this march. So I think that's, I think that's really, really telling. And like you say, you got the arrows and the fact that the Boltons aren't on the field. So it stands, it stands out to me, but what really makes it, I think just a resonant theory and not something fun to look at while you're reading this chapter is, as you say, uh, the politics. So what do, we, what do we have after this battle is over? How do things look politically and not just in a military way for House Stark? You have these, Northern houses and the Riverland houses, in the case of the phrase, aligned to House Stark, who are committed to battle while the Bolton soldiers are holding back. They take no part. And then if you look at the the Northern houses that are, are, are losing people on the battlefield and whose leaders get killed or captured during the battle, you have like the Kerwins, the Manderleys, the Karstarks, the Hornwoods. You know, these are houses that either have land around the Dreadfort area, like the Hornwoods and the Karstarks are Bolton neighbors in the north, or you have the Manderleys, Manderleys and the Kerwins, who are extremely loyal to House Stark personally, not just the north culturally, but the Starks. So <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not inclined to take the side of the Boltons in any further dispute in the north. So that leads one to the conclusion, maybe Roos's overall goal in the Green Fork has nothing to do with winning the battle or even the northern cause as a whole, but endangering these specific guys. Lord Kerwin, Lord Hornwood, Sir Willis Manderley, Harry and Karstark, the phrase. This this was his goal and he accomplished it. And then you put that in context of a clash of kings on, on the home front uh, via Bran's chapters in, in the north. And you have you have Ramsay getting up to all sorts of hijinks. And some of it is just classic Ramsay atrocities of, you know, hunting women and flaying them and killing them and all that horrible stuff. But he's also taking some very specific political actions that really don't seem motivated by him. Like when he's going into the Hornwood lands, marrying her, taking those lands over, fighting the Manderleys. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing Ramsay would care about at all, just left to his own devices. That seems like the kind of thing where he's following orders from Roos. Maybe not specific orders, but just general, hey, 
The northern front is home front is going to be kind of weak and ill-manned while we're all fighting at war. This is a perfect chance to, to take advantage of House Bolton. So any opportunity you, you have, bastard, <laughs> while, I leave, while I leave you at the Dread Fort, you take it. Just like just in the way that Tywin has his own disavowable assets, as we were saying earlier with people like Amria Lorch. I think maybe that's the Roos Ramsey comparison. So you get this overall sense that, yeah, Roos is not already signed up for the Red Wedding. That's not even in Tywin's mind at this point, let alone Roos's. Roos is probably not even thinking about actively betraying Rob at this mm-hmm. point. I don't because I don't think Roos ever intends for Rob to find out about what he did here. So all all Roos is doing is is playing politics and taking advantage of this moment. And I think that's that's. That's so great to have that under the surface because, again, you have, like, the Northerners with their war horns and we're all coming south under Rob and the great John Umber is at his back and you have this great, you know, romantic presentation of the army. But then Morton subtly indicating that, no, even in the good guy army, the quote-unquote good guy army, there's still that cynicism. They're not free of the same kind of grasping power politics we see with the Lannisters. That also happens in the north. And that that happens long before the the seeds for the, the, the outright downfall and betrayal of the Red Wedding are even sown. So I, I, I love this twist and I love that Martin gets it across subtly and I love the work you've done to bring it out, sir. Oh, thanks, man. I really, I never knew that you had read Steve's ad- essays and that's how you, how you found me. So that's, that means a lot. I, I appreciate that. Oh, shucks. Well, he praised you at length and I was already really into his stuff. So I was like, well, if Stephen Atwell likes him, he must be pretty good. And it turns out you work. Oh, man, that's awesome. But yeah, I mean, like, ultimately, like when you go back to what George said in that so spake Martin, you know, the only way that Bruce loses the battle is if he's captured or killed. Does that sound like someone who wants to win the battle outright or to follow the kind of precepts that Rob has outlined for him? Does that sound kind of in conflict with the vision that Rob articulated that he wanted to just lure Tywin Lannister away from River Run itself? And would you apply that same criteria to Rob Stark and his coming battle at the Whispering Wood that the only way that Rob loses is if he, if he is killed or captured in the battle? Maybe this is a fallacy and I can appreciate that if you come at me saying this is a category error. But if we're not applying the same types of criteria for success, I'm not sure that we can say that Roos Bolton wasn't trying to throw the battle, and if not trying to throw the battle itself, ensuring that Bolton Holdings and Bolton and the Bolton cause was advanced in the North because all of these dudes are now dead or captured, and they become very pivotal plot points in Brand's point of view chapters in A Clash of Kings. I love that contrast with Rob because what is what what does Catelyn think to herself when Rob takes the cavalry? Ah, uh, he's going to the most dangerous position, just like Ned would do. He's taking it on for himself. The exact opposite of what Roose is doing. Because as you say, Martin said that Roose is only dangerous getting himself killed. That's all he's worried about. Whereas Rob is willing to put himself in that danger and doesn't even like having his proto Kingsguard around him <laughs> when Catelyn insists on the, the whispering wood. So yeah, and that gets across not just that Rob is heroic and Roos is kind of cowardly, although that is the case, <laughs> but it gets it gets across their very different uh, political aims here, and it's it's I just I love it because it makes this it's so makes this so richer on reread. Like this this chapter is already really great. I love really love the Battle of Green Fork just in and of itself, but coming back to realize the political layers at work just just makes it all the more resonant. And I think it makes I think it's not just an interesting theory in itself. It makes Tyrion Eight a stronger chapter. It does that. And that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Tyrion 8. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our, our, our switching of roles, <laughs> the, the fitting, the, the focus on Jeff's area of expertise. And that we might do it again for something like the Blackwater or whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll see how, how it susses out. But as we said at the top of the episode, it's always great to kind of shake off old routines and enjoy different parts of the podcast. And I had a great time. I hope you guys had a great time listening. And I hope you had a great time doing it as well, Jeff. I really did have a lot of fun doing that. It was kind of 
you know, flexing and kind of exercises the muscles and brain muscles, you know, because I work out, of course, uh, brain muscles that I don't normally actually work out uh, when I'm doing these episodes itself. It's, it's interesting, right? Because I feel like um, I actually think independently and not have to rely on your expertise and, and, and intellect <laughs> <laughs> from doing these doing these uh, chapter analyses and reviews. And so I appreciate the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. Well said, sir. So as always, guys, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play and SoundCloud, wherever you find our fine podcast. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F where you get access to our weekly chapter by chapter episodes early as well as our Game of Thrones coverage in season 8 early. You get exclusive episodes for patron $5 and above patrons once a month as show notes and much more. Follow us on social media at notacast A-S-O-I-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at, at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com Personally, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. So join us next week, guys, for our coverage of Game of Thrones episode five of season eight. We obviously don't know the title of it because HBO has been doing a very good job keeping that under wraps until the episode is over. And join us next week for our next chapter in our regular chapter by chapter podcast which will be Catalan 10 my personal favorite Catalan chapter in a game of thrones and as i said earlier i love all the Catalan chapters in games so that's saying a lot and this of course features the other large-scale battle in book one the battle of the whispering wood which uh, as, as i also said earlier is just a great contrast to this where the green fork is all about the grounded minutiae and whispering wood is just about like the poetic abstraction as Catalan describes everything she's seeing and hearing it's just so lyrical and well-written, and I just love it to death. I love to death, too. And, you know, it feels cool, uh, just thinking about this now, how we started back with Catelyn at Winterfell and Catelyn Stark fending off the cat's ball, and now we're at the very end, her penultimate chapter in A Game of Thrones, where she is witnessing a large-scale battle and her son riding into war, actual war, and trying to win the battle, too. That's a great journey. We've gone from her being alone in a room with one guy and a knife this massive large-scale battle that's yeah that's that's great it's so much fun so thanks again for listening guys and we will see you next week